let's let's pray and kind of get this back to some sense of something or another. God, thank you for the chance to get here tonight and just to um, to teach these students and these adults as we look into your word and to see that we can find um, the Bible as true and trustworthy and it's reliable and that we can uh, stand firm on what it says and um, have confidence in, in, in your word. I pray that uh, we may learn something maybe new tonight and that we're just um, challenged by these things. I pray for a small group time as well as they dig in and just have some discussion time. Shame I pray. Amen. Bless you. All right, here we go. So in our last lesson, we examined historical evidence uh, to show that Jesus did, in fact, rise from the dead. Correct? Y'all remember that? If you were not here, that's what we talked about. But how do we know the events in the Bible really happened, and they aren't just like some kind of legend or, or fairy tales? How do we know that this book that was written thousands of years ago has been reliably transmitted throughout the millennium? So these are some of the issues that we're going to uh, kind of examine today. So we're going to look at, you know, one of the first things we're going to look at is, is the Bible fact or is it fiction? So imagine you ask your grandfather for a story about when he was young. And he begins, all right, well, once upon a time when I was in Narnia. Or once upon a time when I was sitting in my class at Hogwarts. Are you going to believe the story? More than likely not. I mean, you could, I guess. I mean, you could, Narnia, you know, Chronicles of Narnia, in case that didn't make a connection there for you, of course, Hogwarts is not Narnia, but, you know, Harry Potter. And so, we wouldn't believe the story that they're about to tell us. What, what if your grandpa started the story and said with, it was 1955, I was living in Dallas, and, you know, my, my brother Tony, and it just went into a story. You might believe that story, right, a little bit more, because there's, there's people that you know, there's... You know, there's, there's dates, there's locations, there's these things that can be verified, right? So you might believe that story, of course, if you have a grandpa like mine, you may not believe it all the time because he likes to tell tall tales and stuff, right? But what about the Bible? Does it read like a history book or does it read like a, a fairy tale? If you have a Bible, turn to Luke 3. Luke 3, 1 through 2. I feel like Bianca's going to fall asleep in the next 10 minutes. Yeah, maybe. I mean, she's looking a little comfortable back there. Luke 3, 1 and 2. It says this, In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea and Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, and his brother Philip tetrarch of the region of Ataria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene, not the one here, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So what are all the historical details in this passage? You know, you have the, the question words, if you guys ever wrote some things, like for like a newspaper article or things. I remember having to do this assignment as a kid. You have like the, right, the, the who, what, when, where kind of questions. But, so, but not only for this one verse, but as you read the Bible, that should be a question you always ask the Bible. Who is in this? What was going on? Where? That kind of stuff. So, so first thing, look at that passage. When? When do we see this taking place? This is where you guys answer the question out loud. 
What? Look at it. Read the, read the verse. When does it happen? During the, during the, during in the fifteenth year of Caesar, also during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. So you have several. You have the year, and you have these people in place. Where is it happen? Where is this taking place? At the very end of the of the verse. In the wilderness. So he's writing these things in the wilderness, right? Um, but you also have, you have, of course, there's several things there. So what are some other where things in there? Uh, Abilene. Abilene. Galilee. Galilee. But both of those are correct. Galilee. Sorry, this place echoes horribly. Come on. Like what else? Ataria. I guess I don't know how you say it. I don't know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, Judea, Galilee, I mean, there's all kinds of places. What about, who's the who in this passage? Zechariah is in here. Herod. John. Caesar. Tiberius. Philip. Annas. There's a, tons of who's in this, right? Tiberius, Caesar is, yes, same thing. Tiberius Caesar is the same, yeah. And then you have this—you have a city on the western bank of the Sea of Galilee. That's Tiberius. All right. So, what is the what going on here? Towards the end of the passage, the word of God that came to John. So, whenever you read the Bible, I encourage you guys to ask these questions and help kind of formulate the context. So you're not reading things into the scripture that you're not supposed to be reading into the scriptures. This, this is a lot of information in two verses. And so we have independent confirmation, and that means sources outside of the Bible confirming the people and the places and events all mentioned in this passage. The guy who wrote the book of Luke, Luke, he was a careful historian. And then there's, of course, the Old Testament, which is full of names and peoples, uh, genealogies, measurements, rules, locations, and stuff. This is how written or history is written. This is not how fairy tales are written. You don't write fairy tales, that kind of details that can be fact-checked by history. All right, so what about a trustworthy transmission? Right, so we've established that the Bible is about real people in real places in real time, but this book is thousands of years old. How do we know it hasn't been changed over time? Originally, the Bible was written on materials that would eventually deteriorate, right, and kind of fall apart. Uh, so it needed to be copied over and over and over again. That's what the word transmission means. It means the Bible was passed on from one manuscript, one copy, to another copy. So I believe our Bibles that we have today contain the words that were originally written on those copies. That's kind of what we're trying to hopefully answer. Earlier we played the telephone game. Yes, it's a silly game. Yes, we played it, but it was for purpose. Many skeptics kind of compare the telephone game to Bible transmission. They claim the words of the Bible were passed on and changed so many times that uh, it's impossible to know what the original message was. But we need to focus on the rules of telephone. How many times did I tell you the first person the phrase? Once. How many times did you tell the person the phrase? Once, right? So that's the rules. You can't, can you go back and ask me, the first person who has the phrase written down, 
Can you come and ask me what I said? No, right? We, you, you told the next person and the next person. Somebody further down the line cannot come back and confirm what was originally said. And that's, that's not how Scripture transmission works. Maybe, how many of you guys have ever memorized Bible verses as a child? Maybe either in Sunday school or Bible drill something. Maybe they would write the, the board on the verse, or I mean the, the verse on the board, that's the way it really goes. And maybe they would say it to the class. And then you would repeat it maybe multiple times. And uh, the verse on the board, and you recite it to the class over and over. You were given the scripture on a piece of paper to practice at home, and you went home and you practiced it. And when you came back to class the next week, you recited the verse to your teacher. And your teacher would then tell you, yes, that was correct, or no, that was incorrect, work on this part. And this is, this is really closer to true biblical transmission than the game of telephone is. And while your parents or Sunday school teachers may have treated scripture memorization as a game or competition maybe to motivate you to learn, they understood that learning the word of God is sacred. And so did the original transmitters of the Bible. So here's some of the things about why we can see it as a trustworthy transmission. The first one is it was a sacred duty. Of course, the printing press was not available until the 15th century, right? That's a long time. So it had to be copied by hand. Anybody just love to write things by hand over and over and over? I don't. I don't like it. It's not fun. However, this was not like an after-school detention kind of punishment that these people had. Scribes were professional copiers, and each letter in ancient Hebrew was written in rows and columns like a grid and scribes copied the Old Testament scriptures meticulously, letter by letter, line by line. Then the copies were subject to scrutiny. They would look at it, compare it to the original manuscript. And if any letter was found to be incorrect, they would just throw the whole thing away. They wouldn't like scratch it out, rip off the page. They would throw the whole thing away. So the job of a scribe was not a, a child's game. It was a sacred duty. What about missing originals? However, scribes had the original text they could compare against to see if they made any mistakes, right? Unfortunately, we don't have we don't have any copies of the original thing that like John wrote it on. We don't have that stuff, okay? So how can we possibly know that what we have in our Bibles is correct? How can you possibly know what you have there in your lap is correct? Imagine the original copy of the US Constitution was stolen by the guy from National Treasure, whatever his name is, Nicholas Cage. We're bringing it up twice tonight. What would happen? Would we, would we lose the words of the Declaration of Independence or the Constitution, anything like that? Would we, would we lose that stuff? No, we have copies. We have pictures of those documents. We have the words on the Internet. We have words in your textbooks. We have copies of those things in places. And the same is true of the Bible. We can have confidence in what the original said. So we're going to kind of look at some of the manuscript evidence of how we can know this stuff is true. I know it may be boring you guys, or maybe like, why are you telling me this is stupid? I think it's important that we understand how the Bible is truth, how we got the Bible, how we have what you have in your lap from in this English translation, and how we can know it's truth, right? Because if you don't believe it to be true, you're not going to do what it says, correct? That just makes sense. So I want you guys to believe it to be truth, not some legends or fairy tales, just stories, but this is truth. This is the word of God. 
So when discussing the reliability of ancient texts, there are three factors to bear in mind. Number one, when was the original thing written out? That's a good thing, right? When was it written? The date of the oldest copy. So we have the original written out. When was the first copy made? And then the number of how many copies we have. Before examining the Bible, we're going to look at some other works of antiquity so we can have a point of reference as we look at it. Tacitus is one of the most important ancient Roman historians. And if that name sounds familiar, we talked about him last week when he mentioned and wrote about a guy named Jesus. He lived from AD 56 to 120, and he wrote his, his annals, which concern Rome from AD 14 to 68. So he has his history, right? We have 36 manuscripts, and the earliest is from AD, like AD 50, all right? So he wrote, he lived between 56 and 120. We have 36 copies, but the first copy was in is 800, the year 850. That's a long time between the earliest copy and whenever it was originally written. Caesar's Gallic Wars were composed between 58 and 50 B.C., we have about 260 manuscripts, but only 9 or 10 are in good condition. Um, the oldest manuscript is about 900 years later than Julius Caesar's time period. Homer, anybody know who Homer is? Not the yellow guy, but Homer. What did he write? He wrote uh, the Iliad and the Odyssey. Um, he lived around 900 B.C. Um, the earliest copy of the Iliad dates about 415 B.C., giving a time span of nearly 500 years. And then we have 1,900 copies of his work. So we don't, you know, the, the reliability and authenticity of these ancient works are generally accepted by scholars. Like nobody's doubting what these guys are writing and saying. So wouldn't it make sense to hold the Bible to the same standard as these literary works, right? How many copies? When was the earliest copy written? Those, if those books are held to that standard, how come the... The Bible is not. So we're going to get specifically the New Testament. The New Testament is written between A.D. 40 and A.D. 100, between all uh, of the books. And the earliest existing fragment is from around 125 A.D. This gives a difference of about 25 years. It's a lot shorter than the other books we talked about. How many copies or manuscripts do we have of the New Testament? About 24,000 copies. That's a lot more than the 36 or 290 copies we have of the other things. It's just crazy. The highest, second highest book is the Iliad with 1,900 copies. And I, and I think this is an old um, data because I think there's more than 24,000 now since uh, I last did this. But consider this example. If we stack the total manuscripts for the average classical writer, they'd be about four inches high of all the, all the copies. In the case of the New Testament, uh, all the manuscripts stacked together would be over a mile high. That's, that's crazy. That's pretty, pretty impressive stuff. So when we compare the copies, here are the results of all the copies we have of the New Testament. There's about 95% agreement between all the manuscripts. Most of the variances we have are due to spelling and punctuation differences, but not a single major Christian doctrine is impacted by any of these manuscript variances. So we can be highly confident that the Bible that you have there in your lap or on your phone matches what was originally written.
So far we've learned that the, the Bible records accurate history, not mere legends and fairy tales, and we also know that it's been transmitted reliably throughout the centuries. In our last lesson, we found that there's good reason to believe Jesus did rise from the dead, vindicating his claims to be the Son of God. So we're going to kind of end our lesson tonight by examining what Jesus thought of the Bible. In the Gospels, Jesus thought this about the Old Testament. He said, it is the Word of God. That's Mark 7, 13. Jesus said, it is the commandment of God. In Matthew 15, 3, he said, uh, it cannot be broken, John 10, 35, or destroyed, Matthew 5, 18. Jesus taught that the Old Testament is truth in John 7, 17. And it's sufficient for faith and holy living in Luke 16. So this is, these are the things that Jesus said about the Old Testament. That's what his scripture was. You know, he relied on the authority of the Old Testament for, for authority and knowledge, whether he was being questioned by his disciples in Matthew 21 or if he's being tested by the Pharisees in Matthew or tempted by Satan in the wilderness. He used the Old Testament, the scriptures, to back up what he was saying. So not only confirmed Old Testament teachings as authoritative and binding, but he also referred to people and events proving their historical validity because he talks about God's creation of the world in Mark 13. He talks about a literal Adam and Eve in Matthew 19, Cain murdering his brother Abel and Luke. Noah in the ark, Matthew 24, the life and faith of Abraham in John 8, Jonah and the great fish in Matthew 12, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah and the death of Lot's wife in Luke 17, Moses in the burning bush in Mark 12, and the manna provided to the Israelites in the wilderness in John 6. These are things that Jesus confirmed as truth. But he also affirmed the entire Old Testament canon in Matthew 23, 35, when he referenced the first and last martyrs ever recorded in the Old Testament. We have Abel in the book of Genesis, and the prophet Zechariah in the book of Chronicles, which if you read the Old Testament, what's our, what's our last book of the Old Testament in our order? Come on, Bible Joe people. Malachi. In the Hebrew order, it's the book of Chronicles. And the last death recorded in there is of the prophet Zechariah. And so we have Jesus talks about those two guys in the canon that's already been formed of the Old Testament whenever he's alive. And he also taught that the entire Old Testament pointed to him in Luke 24. So it's clear that Jesus throughout the Old Testament continued or contain ultimate authority. And so did his followers, the ones who carried on his teachings and wrote them down, becoming what we know as the New Testament. One of the most famous passages in the Bible about the Holy Scriptures was written by Paul. You guys probably have heard this a few times. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That phrase, God breathed, is very powerful. kind of evokes... God's breathing life back into, or into Adam back in Genesis 1. Because Scripture flows from God and gives it life and gives it authority. But all those things talk about the Old Testament, right? So what is the New Testament? Does it have the same authority and the same power as the Old Testament? And the New Testament authors, when they were writing their stuff, they themselves believed that they were writing Holy Scriptures. In his first letter to the, to the church in Corinth, Paul tells his readers this, if anyone thinks they are a prophet or otherwise gifted by the Spirit, let them acknowledge that what I'm writing to you is the Lord's command. In other words, his words are authoritative commands from God. 
And Paul told the church in Thessalonica that he was teaching them was not a human word, but the word of God in 1 Thessalonians 2. And Peter was even aware of Paul's writings and considers them authoritative alongside the other scriptures. We see that in 2 Peter chapter 3. You have 1 Corinthians 14.37. What we read just a minute ago. Sorry, my bad. And then 1 Timothy 5. But the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. This is interesting, I think, because here Paul provides two quotations that he explicitly ref refers to as Scripture. The first quote that he talks about is from Deuteronomy 25, which makes sense for him to say is Scripture. The second verse he's saying that the laborer deserves his wages. Who said that? Y'all know? This is the Sunday school answer. Come on. Jesus. Jesus said this in Luke 10. So here, Paul is quoting both the Old and New Testament side by side and calls them both Scripture. They're showing that both the Old Testament and the new writings that will become the New Testament are equally authoritative for Christian believers. So a quick final challenge before we sing. Um, if the Bible is the Word of God and has been transmitted accurately, then it is the greatest source of truth for how we are to live our lives. The Bible is the means by which God communicates His truth that offers the abundant life. So we can trust the Bible as a divine source and build our lives on its claims. We'll have you to go ahead and come up. Lee is not here to play the bass. So you ought to in tracks. But here's a quick, just a quick recap while they're coming up. We've learned that the Bible records historical fiction. I mean, fiction, that's not right. That's totally wrong. Historical information. You can just jump. You're fine. Just don't drip. The Bible has been reliably transmitted over the centuries. And the Bible is the very Word of God, our spiritual, our source of spiritual life. So what does this mean for us? Here, here, here are a few things for us to reflect on. God's Word gives us life, Matthew 4, and blessing, Psalm 1. God's Word is truth, not really true, but truth, is John 17. The Word of God is alive and active. It can tell us how to change our lives, Hebrews 4, 12. And Scripture equips a believer for every good work. All right. Y'all ready? I got this. McKenna, you're gonna do you're gonna do mediocre. 